Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I will be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. My guest today on One for the Road is the amazing Professor David Nutt. He is an English neuropsychopharmacologist specialising in the research of drugs that affect the brain. He wrote the fantastic book Drink and has just written his latest book Psychedelics, which explores the subject of how psychedelics, when used according to safe, tested and ethical guidelines, could be one of our most powerful treatments for depression, PTSD, OCD, as well as disordered eating and addiction. And don't forget, I'm partnering up with Coach Helen Bennett, who specialises in helping people to stop losing control with food. And she's offered a fabulous 10% off of all of her courses, classes and private coaching programmes. So use the discount code SOBERDAVE at the checkout. Head over to her website, helenbennett.co. Hello, Professor David Nutt. Welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. I'm so privileged to have you on as a guest today. I, at the beginning of my journey, bought your book, Drink. Um, I love the science around things and how my brain works, and it helped me no end. So it's a real pleasure to have you on today. Thanks for joining. How are you? Well, I'm always delighted to know that my books have helped someone. And Thank you for sharing that. They they really do. And I recommend them to all the people that come to me for help as well, because it's really important people get to know how alcohol affects the, the body and the brain. And there's so much in that book. Um, and, you know, it it's so fascinating to know about the neurotransmitters and what alcohol does. So I did a little poll, actually, uh, in my private group, and they come up with some interesting questions. But one of the first ones was um, they were really keen to know um, what started your career and how you got into this line of work as well. Yeah, well, it all, I can remember the day. It was my first night at university. And there are, I go, uh, there are in my college at Cambridge, there are nine medical students. And uh, what do we do the first night? We all go to the pub. Some of them do afterwards. They carry on drinking. What happens at one in the morning? One of them starts to wail and cry. And, and I think he's going to kill himself. And I think, should we get an ambulance? Get an ambulance. And he's, there was another guy there who knew him. He said, no, he's always like that when he's drunk. And he's only 18. And I'm seeing this guy going from you know, being one of the, you know, a top student to being a blubbering wreck as a result of alcohol. And I'm thinking, wow, that's kind of both weird and interesting. <laughs> it's telling us something about the brain. It's telling us something about mood. It's telling us something about alcohol. And that was very, that group, that group of nine, one of them died of alcoholism. So you got some of the most intelligent people you'll ever meet. One of them died in his 30s of alcoholism. That particular guy that I, I just mentioned to you now, he had real problems with drinking through his career. Eventually he got through it and eventually he, you know, his marriage broke up. He almost lost his, his job, but eventually he made it through. Uh, and so that is the kind of tells you the challenge that alcohol presents from a very early age. And, and it's there all the time. Every doctor, 
every day meet someone who's been damaged by alcohol. It's scary, isn't it? Well, it's only scared me. <laughs> well, yeah, but that, that got you into the work you did, right? So you worked for the government as well, didn't you? Well, I tried to. <laughs> well, yeah, it was in the 90s, wasn't it? Um, you, you set up something, didn't you, um, yeah. for 10 years? Yeah, I did. I did advise them. I was their sort of chief scientist on drugs, trying to advise them on drugs and sensible drug policy. And they would listen if you said, you know, ban this or prosecute this. But as soon as you said, let's have a more rational approach, and particularly let's try to reduce the harms of alcohol, they just shut up and they got very angry when I carried on saying, look, guys, you know, if you really care about people being harmed by drugs, we'll do something about alcohol because it's the most harmful drug in the UK. And subsequently... There have now been four separate studies using the similar methodology, Europe, Australia, and just, just a few months ago published from New Zealand. They all show where alcohol is around. It is the most harmful drug because it's a popular drug and it's also quite harmful. And it's so, um, it's everywhere you look and it's, it's virtually impossible to escape from, isn't it? Because of the, there's the kind of judgment you get. If you say you want to stop smoking or you want to give up sugar, I'm on a caffeine break at the moment as well to see where that takes me. But if you say you want to stop drinking. <laughs> no, exactly. And, and this is, this, this does, it really angers me that, you know, you can still advertise alcohol quite publicly on television. You can advertise it in cinemas, et cetera, on billboards, but not tobacco. And that, and that is, and that is be the truth is it's because the drinks industry has been very, very clever. It's learnt the lessons from the tobacco industry, and it's uh, rather than uh, admit that it's the alcohol that's a problem, it's putting the blame back on the person. It says drink responsibly. Now you and I know that one of the main reasons people drink is to lose responsibility. So th they know it's a, it's just a platitude. Uh, and I, 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 I'm upset by the idea that pe it's people's, it's people's fault that they suffer from alcohol because we know it's not. We know that 15% of drinkers get into trouble. That's not because they, they're weak willed. That's not because they're cowards. That's not because they're stupid. It's because alcohol affects their brain differently to other people. And I mean, lockdown's a classic case as well because more and more people are coming to me off the back of lockdown still where, I don't even remember the weather was incredible in March and uh, you know on social media people were sharing pictures of oh it's one o'clock at two o'clock you know and it became a thing but when people started to go back to work or they were doing zoom calls they were getting cravings at two o'clock and wondering why uh, and that's led on now to this almost like a pandemic of people that are really struggling with um, alcohol. What, what COVID did was it made those who have problems with alcohol get worse problem absolutely mm. because there was nothing else to fill their life uh, and uh, it, you know you you could order it so it was safe you could you know people would deliver it to your door so yeah so we find that you know that some people cut down drinking but, but the people who were drinking a lot tended to drink more and therefore get into more problems i'm just so glad i'd stopped drinking by then because i don't know how i'd have got it all do you know what i mean i know what you say i mean this whole delivery thing and, yeah. and uh, you know having it delivered to doors a nightmare now yeah, I mean, you can, and we see examples of this. I, I mentioned one in the book. Um, people who who no, never, you know, re can drink themselves to death simply on deliveries. Yeah, it's absolutely horrendous. And as you see behind me on my picture, I've got a picture of Amy Winehouse there, and that's basically what she did because she abstained for a few weeks, didn't she, and then drank, I 
I think, bottle of vodka or litre of vodka. That's what we understand, yes. I mean, Amy's, Amy's case is remarkable because she was also a heroin addict, but it was the alcohol that killed her because she stopped drinking. And we have this idea that if you stop drinking for six weeks, you're cured, which is absolute rubbish, as you know. And it was easier for her to relapse. When she relapsed, it was easier for her to get vodka than it was to get heroin. And she'd lost tolerance to, to the alcohol that she'd been drinking, like everyone does if they stop drinking. And what the blood alcohol level that she had when she died w- wouldn't have killed her if she carried on drinking. And, 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 and this is part of the intellectual problem we have in this country. We think abstinence is the solution. Well, it is, but keeping abstinence is so difficult. We've got to invest in ther- ways of helping people stay abstinent. And it's damn difficult, as you probably know yourself. Absolutely. There, there's very little support. And actually, since I've stopped drinking, there's a lot of support in social media. Um, you know, it used to be go to AA, go to your doctor, but now there's so much more available, luckily, um, because I tried AA and it didn't really work for me. So I had to find other things. Yeah, well, I think, it's, as you say, that's one of the great advantages of having so much social media. That, you know, eventually you can work through it and find something that supports you. I mean, generally, general practitioners have very little competence and very little skills in helping people stay absolutely. And AA, yeah, I mean, if you if it suits you, it's great. AA is like a church. You know, if you go to church, it's great. But if it's not your church, then you do feel, you know, you have to believe in order for it to work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like white knuckling is not enough. You know, that's why I think connection is really important. And that's what I found. I went to an event and I was petrified because I, I normally I would drink before the event, and that's what a lot of people struggle with, the social anxiety, right? Oh, I, I mean, that, you're absolutely right, David. I mean, one of the reasons I I started – I used to – I'm a psychiatrist, and my main clinical work was not in addiction. My main clinical work was in anxiety. And I remember about early 90s, I was asked to go and see a man. who He lived about 25 miles away from Bristol, where I was working at the time in the university. Because um, he uh, was very, very, very anxious, and when I got there, I, I realised he was—he was, he was yeah, agoraphobic. Couldn't get out of the house. And when I got there, I, I, I realised that he had severe alcohol problems. Like he had neuropathy. You know, he couldn't feel his feet because he was drinking so much. And I said to him, "You know, have you know, you know, you know, you know, you've got an alcohol problem, don't you?" And he said, "Yes, I do." And he said, "Yeah, actually, he said I have to drink two cans of Tenant Super Strength just to go outside the house and mow the lawn." Because I'm so anxious about being outside. And I said, well, well, you know, have you ever tried treatment? He said, well, yeah. I mean, literally, I had to drink four cans to go to AA. And he said, AA, I knew I wasn't like them. I knew my problem was anxiety, not, not alcohol. But everyone has to conform to that particular model. And then I got very interested in this whole issue of, of what proportion of people become get problems with alcohol because they've got other mental health problems. And it turns out it's quite a lot. A lot of people drink because they're anxious, a lot of young men. A lot of older people drink because they're depressed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so um, this is one that comes up a lot for me. And it, the question is, is alcoholism genetic? Because quite a lot of people um, that work with me, they go, oh, my dad's an alcoholic, my granddad's an alcoholic. What's the, what are the facts behind that? Yeah, well, there again, there's a bit of a, bit of a historical anecdote about me. When I was a medical student, I was uh, I did what was called locum. I, I spent uh, a couple of months acting as a sort of junior doctor and um, on a psychiatric ward. So I started reading 
all the books, uh, you know, the textbooks of psychiatry. And there was in that textbook, there was a section on alcoholism. And I read about an amazing study, which is called the Danish Adoption Study. And that was done um, in Denmark because in Denmark you have a, you have what's called a register. So adopted uh, children, we, they can work out where they were adopted from and who they were obviously where they went to. But you can cross link the fact that they were adopted to the the medical history of the original parents, the genetic parents, and the um, the parents that bring them up. And it was staggering. It showed that men, you know, whose parent, as male, whose dads were alcoholic. They were as likely to be alcoholic if they were adopted into a teetotal family as if they stayed with the drinking parent. Wow. And that tells you that there is a significant genetic component to it. Now, it's probably not a genetic component to alcohol. It's probably a propensity to become dependent. Some of it might be alcohol-related, but others will be be too So like a vulnerability? Like a vulnerability, that's right. So it doesn't mean it's inevitable that you, but it tells you that you've got this, these vulnerabilities, yeah, contribute significantly. So, so we know that male children of, um, uh, of male alcoholics are at increased risk. What we don't know is how to help them. But I think just telling them that is something important because if, and of course, you know, and I know that many people have made that insight themselves. They have seen you, or it's very common. You know, my father was a terrible drinker. I'm not going to drink. You know, I'm going to actually avoid that possibility yeah. to minimize the risk to me. Learn behavior. You either, you either carry on to do it or you avoid it. Yes, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Another one, um, does the heavy use of alcohol decrease or damage our natural dopamine levels in long term after abstinence? Well, it certainly messes with them in the short term. In the long term, we think they gradually come back. We think eventually, and, and people eventually become get, they get pleasure from other things just than alcohol. But it, that can take weeks or months, uh, and it might be in some people it doesn't come back. But but I think for most, you know, it does. You eventually get to learn to like other what we call reinforcers. You begin to enjoy things. Obviously, when you're drinking heavily, nothing matters other than alcohol, and you lose all your interest in your friends and your and other things. But eventually, I think that comes back if you stop drinking for long enough. Yeah. Yeah, because I wonder about myself because I had a, a test done and um, they found out I've got a faulty dopamine receptor. And I think oh. that's why I drank like I did because I was a, a six, seven pint man down the pub in an hour and then go and polish off a bottle of vodka because the high was never <laughs> enough. You know, I'd have such a short high. So where someone would be standing there with a pint and I'm looking at them thinking, well, it's your round. You've had two sips out of it. I'm already <laughs> down to the bottom of mine. Well, David, you're right, absolutely. And in fact, the, the, that is one of the most reproducible findings that the dopamine system does predict the amount you, people drink. And it is the problem we've had is that it, it's been very difficult to, to help tar- to target that system to help you control your drinking. Funnily enough, I'll just throw this out. I mean, it's, I don't, can't remember if it's in the book, but you know, antabuse. Funnily enough, antibuse may have some of its effect through enhancing dopamine and protecting against that. It's not been proven, but it's been suggested. Mostly you think antibuse is averse if you drink on top of it and you throw up, but, but it may be also helping reset the dopamine system in the brain. Well, we can talk about that later with your new book, Psychedelics, which is fascinating. But, um, you know, is there a reason as well why you get someone that can drink one drink and have a cup of tea? And with me... 
I just can't. Is that the progression of my drinking or was I already set that way? Or what, what is that? Well, what we think it is, is that two things. And I think in part, some of it will be genetic. You will have been set that way. But, but the two variables, the two factors which which predispose to this binging that you had. One is you've already touched on, which is the dopamine system. You get a little release, but you, but your system needs more and more because it doesn't sustain. But then there's the other side of the coin, which are the things called endorphins, you know, the, the, the so-called runner's high, these natural um, chemicals in the brain, which make, which actually deaden pain, uh, but also um, can give you pleasure. Now, we know that alcohol releases those, and we know that treatments which um, – can help people stop binging like narmaphene. They seem to dampen down that system. So we think people who lose control very early on and, and, and go on binges, it's to, to do with the dopamine system being too subsensitive and the endorphin system being too strong. And that's an imbalance. Yeah. I mean, you write in your book about um, how the, the alcohol affects the neurotransmitters. And I, what I love is how you explain it um, when you have the one drink, two drinks. Would you mind? Going through that, because I think that's really fascinating. Yes. I mean, alcohol, as I you know, often use the term, it's a very promiscuous drug. You know, you basically people drink it for all sorts of reasons. And the reason it works in all sorts of different reasons for different reasons is because it works on almost all the different neurotransmitters in the brain. It, but it does it in different concentrations. So that the first drink is about turning on a system called the GABA system. That's the relaxation system in the brain. It, it helps you get over that social anxiety that we all have. You know, you go to a pub, you're not sure, can I talk to the neighbor? You know, people looking at me. First half a pint, you relax, you're chatting. That's GABA. And if you stuck, stuck at that, it would be good. Yeah. But then when you start pushing the dose up a bit, then you start to release dopamine. And that's when you get really happy and chatty and, you know, you know and, that, and that's great. But on the other hand, it's moving you down the field of addiction. And then you begin to release endorphins, and that's moving you more down the disc loss of control and addiction. And then maybe if you keep on pushing it, uh, and, and when you get over about 150 milligrams per cent, so twice the legal drive limit, then you start to do something very dangerous, which is which is blocking, not simulating, blocking the main transmitter in the brain which keeps you awake, which is called glutamate. Uh, and if you keep when you start blocking glutamate, you can't lay down memories, so you have blackouts. Glutamate is what keeps you awake and alive. And if you block it enough, then you can't, you're not alive you, because you can't breathe. And that's what happened to poor Odemi. Oh, I see. So is that actually alcohol poisoning when you stop it's, breathing? Correct. So the blocking the glutamate, when alcohol the levels push right up, you block the glutamate system and the glutamate system makes the brain work. And if the brain doesn't work, you die. But your brain is all every as you start to block glutamate, your brain is saying, This is bad. I don't like this. We've got to change, we've got to adapt. So as you the, you block the receptors, but your brain starts making more of them to try to compensate. Obviously, if you overwhelm it by, you know, by drinking, you know, as poor Amy did, you know, a liter of vodka, then it can't compensate. But if you don't get that drunk, if you just get very drunk, but not deathly drunk, then your brain starts to compensate. But then you get the double whammy, because then the alcohol level's full. And you've got too many glutamate receptors. And that's why you get the shakes and the sleep disturbance and the, all the problems of hangover. The three o'clock wake up of doom when you're just laying there. Absolutely. And you... Absolutely. And that's the glutamate system in overdrive. 
because it's compensated for the alcohol. The alcohol's gone, and there's just too much glutamate. And that's also why people start to get anxious. And I, I don't know if you remember in my book, I talk about one man who who had quite severe social anxiety. Uh, and he would go, you know, he'd go to the bar and he'd drink alcohol and he'd become very sociable. But gradually, he got the as he, the more he the near he, his anxiety started to come on more and more as he started going to the bar, uh, because his brain was saying I'm, he's going to get drunk, so I'm going to turn on the glutamate in in anticipation. And eventually, he was having his panic attacks because he was trying to drink because his brain was overcompensating before he started drinking. I can really relate to that, actually. Um, I, I met some friends in the bar and I was just drinking like crazy before they turned up and when they were there. And then I met a new set and the gap in between, I kept going to the bar because my, my anxiety was sky high. Well, David, I'm really so glad you shared this because I'm embarrassed to say this, but I, 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 I won't name the name. But one of my best friends when I was a junior doctor ended up nearly being struck off for alcoholism and when we got him into treatment afterwards i said i i never understood i never really realized you know you drank a lot but you were never drunk <laughs> and he said no david what you didn't realize is that i was i was always i'd always go to the bar half an hour before you turn up mm. because i was so anxious i had to get two or three drinks in to cope with the evening and i thought wow i didn't i just didn't know that he didn't declare that but this conversation, you know, if just sharing with your listeners now, if you're doing that, if you're going to the bar before others because you're anxious, then there are other ways of dealing with anxiety Not that are a lot better mm. than alcohol. Well, and I think that's one of the biggest things that um, prevent people trying to abstain from alcohol because of the anxiety. Um, you know, they it's a coping mechanism, alcohol, isn't it? And when you remove it, it's like, what what do I have to put in place now, when especially now, like the kids are on holiday, the weather's been terrible. It's the cost of living crisis, and that, and then you remove alcohol, and you've lost your reward. That's getting you through the day. Because when you think, "Oh, I can have a nice glass of wine tonight," and you, well, actually, I can't because I said I'd give up. It's difficult. Yeah, well, it is extremely difficult, and and I mean, I, there are ways in which you can help deal with anxiety. I mean, one of the obviously, I'd like us to be teaching children at school. Mm. how to deal with mental health issues, how to deal with things like this. I'd like to be teaching them coping skills from a very early age. That would be a way of protecting them, giving resilience. But for people who are very anxious, well, then you can. there are psychological approaches. There are also other medications. I mean, if you've got really bad social anxiety, there are medications which are extremely effective. And, 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 if, and, and not only will they give you a better quality of life, but they will also allow you to control your drinking as well yeah absolutely and you know i i find um it'd be interesting to talk to you about moderation right because mm. i mm. i with most of the people i work with it's almost like a no-no i just think one there's a saying isn't there you can turn a cucumber into a pickle but you can't turn it back right so i've not heard that before but that's that's actually very interesting. Yeah, that's a pretty powerful analogy, yes. Yeah, and for me, I just can't afford to even contemplate having a drink because I'm sure I'll be back on it within a week. And evidence t tells us that for many people that is the case. And what we need to, well, yeah, it, what we need to be doing, I mean, you know, it's impressive that you've managed to maintain your abstinence just, by, I guess, just by willpower and by, by thinking things through. But it, it is, I think it's possible that there might be medicines like a Camprosate, Camprol, which perhaps help reduce craving. So I think there are maybe other ways we can help people. 
to stay absent other than just saying, you know, be tough. Well, that, that's a good lead into your book, actually, isn't it? Right. Because for a while now, people have been talking about CBD and, and different ways of, um, turning a brain off, right? That's what, that's what it yes, does. Yes, so yes, you've yes. been, um, exploring psychedelics. So, um, I hope he doesn't mind me saying my son, sometimes microdoses mushrooms right and he said it's brought his anxiety right down interesting interesting perfectly perfectly credible yeah yeah but he says to me oh i worry about you though dad because you know my addictive nature and so there were a lot can i just say i don't believe and, and this is based on lots of evidence that psychedelics are addictive if you try to take a lot of them the effect just wears off and you can't get it back Whereas with microdosing, you can get a little effect every day. And so, uh, it, it, but just to emphasize, I mean, there's this wonderful paper came out just last year by Michael Bogenschutz in America showing just one trip, one big psilocybin trip could actually very significantly reduce people's desire to drink for, for, for weeks and weeks. So, so it might even, you know, I think psychedelics might have a real role here mm. in helping people reset their attitude to alcohol. That's why I wanted to get you on, David, because yeah. it, it. I wanted you to explain how they work. Because out here in the field, people are going, "Oh, wouldn't touch them with a barge pole," because they think it's a drug, not a medicine. They think I'm an addict. Um, I don't want to go near it. So maybe you could explain how how they work and and what you have been exploring as well. I will do that. But before I before I start, I want to say something that a lot of people. Most people do not know, which is that Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, he cured himself, himself of his alcohol dependence as a result of a psychedelic experience. And he then, when LSD became available in the 50s, he used it and he realized that it could potentially be very helpful to many, many, many people who can't stop drinking. And he campaigned to have studies done and there were uh, I think six studies done, single dose of LSD, helping people stay abstinent. And it, and it worked better than any medicine we have had since. So the history tells us it can work. AA was founded on the in- experience of breaking free from the shackles of alcoholism. So the, what's interesting now is that we now know how it works. Then we, we just knew it did work. And then it got banned because of the Vietnam War and the anti-war protests and the in the, in the counterculture and people didn't like psychedelic music and the, the governments didn't like psychedelic art. But then, um, but now we, we actually know how it works because we know that when we look into the brains of people who've got uh, addictions, we can see there are patterns of thinking and patterns of behavior, which can be disrupted mm-hmm. by psychedelics in a very you know, powerful way. And it's like a reset, you know, and, and patients often say this, they say, it's like, you know, I reformatted my, the hard drive of my computer or, or you know, I've, uh, you know, I've, I've, um, had a reset or a defrag, you know, everything works much more fluently now. You know, you know what it's like, you know, you, you know how your computers work more better when you sort them out. So these drugs can help sort out their brains. So you talk about the default mode network. Is that what oh, you're saying? Very good. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> yes, I will talk about that. So the default mode network is the network in your brain that does the thinking about yourself. Right. It's called the default mode because it's what is working when you've everything else is switched off. If you close your eyes and don't listen to anything, you just lie still and flat and careful, and you just think about your present, your past, your future, your aspirations, your hopes, your fears, 
that network in the brain is called the default mode. It's where your sense of self is encoded and engaged. And, and that's over-engaged in people with alcoholism. It's over-engaged with thinking about alcohol. Psychedelics break that down and so allow you to think much more rationally about everything, less about alcohol, more about other things. Okay, so it switches it off. But what about people that have past trauma? So Gabor Marte says, not why the addiction, why the pain? Yes, right. Yeah, and, absolutely. you know, a lot of people come to me and they've had childhood trauma, big T's, little T's, I've called them. There's there's big traumas where there's been abuse um, and there's the other traumas where they're uh, not feeling loved or, you know. So where does that do you believe in therapy as well as this? Totally. So this is. Yeah. I mean, I'm Gabor. I'm, you know, I'm great friends with Gabor. No. By the way, if you want to hear him, he's on my podcast on the Drug Science Podcast. Oh, a hundred percent. And he talks. He talks about this uh, this wonderful phrase, sad phrase, but powerful phrase from the, the the book, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the realm of the hungry ghosts. Mm, I've got it. Uh, and uh, he um, it's it's a the fact that what's happened to you, particularly as a child, is in your mind. It's there all the time. It's it becomes part of you. It, and you, you know, it's, it's sucking the lifeblood out of you. You've got to deal with it. So we, when we use psychedelics, we always use them with therapy. We always help, we prepare people very carefully so that they get the maximum benefit from it. And then we're with them through it. And then we're with them afterwards to try to help them make sense of the new learnings. Often things come up which they've forgotten about or repressed for decades. And then they come back and they can, we can deal with them and, and help them kind of overcome it. And so I think Mator's approach of, of using the value of psychedelic experience plus psychotherapy helping deal with the, the past is a really, it, to my mind, that's the most powerful thing we can do. It's fascinating, actually. Uh, you know, reading about it yesterday on a very noisy train, and that's how my brain used to be when I drank. And to drink used to turn that noise down. So I yes. used to think of it as getting in from work, and the radio's on with a song I hate at full blast and two big vodkas and this this song had gone. But then three hours later, it was back twice as loud. That's how I always used to see well, it. Well, exactly. Because- that's it. That's the cycle, isn't it? Alcohol dampens, but it changes the brain so it comes back worse. And that's that vicious, vicious downward spiral. So you think that the future may be um, using microdosing? Possibly. I think psychedelics will change, and I think we'll be using psychedelics to, to help people break free from addictions. But we might be using microdosing to help um, people stay free. And that's something that, you know, it's very difficult to study at present because, because microdosing is, is as illegal as a big dose. And that, but if you've got to take it every day and carry it around with you, that's, that is actually impossible currently under the current regulation. So I really want a campaign to change the regulations so that, um, so that people can much more quickly, much less expensively do this research. Yeah, and how do we do that? Because in Australia, and I think the Netherlands, they're already introducing yeah. this, aren't they? So, Well, we just have to persuade the government that some drugs, like psilocybin, are medicines, not drugs. You made that point earlier on. Currently, we're one of the few countries that vests the control of medicines like those in the Home Office which is full of policemen. I mean, the Home Office is one approach is say no, ban, block, imprison. We've got to get them out of the Home Office, get them into health, and then we've got to use them as medicines as they were. You know, you know they have been for centuries. It's only, it's only the last 50 years we've denied their medical benefit. 
I mean, it, it's uh, where where do we go with this? Because like um, the alcohol industry is so huge, isn't it? It's it's like a huge machine, money making machine, isn't it? Cost us billions. Well, the alcohol industry is, I think, the most profitable industry in the world because it costs pennies to make alcohol, and it, you know you sell it for pounds. But of course, a lot of that cost goes into tax. So governments like the alcohol industry because they get you know, a regular revenue from the alcohol industry because of the taxation. And they say, the alcohol industry says, oh, it pays for itself. It doesn't. We know that the taxation from alcohol is way less than the cost of alcohol to society. Is that like accidents, that, what it costs in national health? Yeah, the healthcare costs. Of police, it, you might not know this, but it costs twice as much to police drunkenness as the healthcare costs of alcohol. Nearly £7 billion a year to police drunkenness. Overall, alcohol costs about thirty billion to this UK society, and it costs and the benefits are about twenty billion. Now, the the point about that 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 is the Treasury say, yeah, but and so, but we need this regular income, and if we changed the funding, for instance, minimum unit pricing, you say, well, that will that will reduce our taxation income, and and they say that the return in terms of health benefits would be quite delayed, so there'd be a a gap of years before we recouped. But that's not true. Scotland have shown that with their minimum unit pricing, they have shown that if you reduce drinking, even by 10%, you can have a dramatic immediate impact on um, the admission of people to intensive care, for instance. Mm. So there are immediate benefits, commercial benefits. So so that's the first thing we need to do. And isn't it, I mean, I have to say, give this man credit, give this soon act for the first prime minister ever to agree with me on alcohol which is that at very least the tax burden should relate to the concentration of alcohol in the drink yeah he's done that and that, and that has always been completely absurd that yeah. you can pay for three times as much tax on a 10 percent wine as on a 10 percent cider that makes no sense that just encourages people to drink more cider yeah that so, recently changed didn't it yeah it's changing and that's that, that is the first acknowledgement that, that we've got it wrong but the other thing that's happening, the drinks industry is also waking up to the fact that more and more people, particularly young people, are aware of the harms of alcohol and are aware that they want to behave differently with it. And we're having what's called the low and no um, revolution. Some people don't drink at all because for health reasons. Others don't drink in the week and just drink at weekends. Or, and others drink less because and – and, and the drinks industry knows that's coming. Well, it's, it's not just coming. It's actually – alcohol sales have flattened. Because people are moving to non-alcoholic drinks or alternatives, uh, and um, and the drinks industry now has to change its approach. I don't think it can ever re-establish this year-on-year growth of consumption. We have to we have to think about drinking differently, and and that's why I've been trying to help them by inventing alternatives to alcohol <laughs> that actually give people the social pleasures that alcohol gives without actually um, having anything like the same harms. Yeah, I mean the. Low and no industry is absolutely booming now. Um, and that's not just for people that have stopped drinking. It's for people that don't want to drink because they might have a big meeting in the morning or they might be driving or, or they don't want to make a fool of themselves, you know? Yeah, actually, it interesting how social media is changing young people's attitude to alcohol because they don't want to have, be, have videos of them behaving outrageously when yeah. they're drunk. I mean, it used to be that that was macho 
now that scene is really stupid. And that, that change in fashion is probably going to have more influence on the arms of alcohol than any, any book I've ever read or any drug yeah. that's ever been made. I did a talk in a school um, with some kids. They were between 16 and 18, and I, I basically told my story. But what they remember the most is um, you don't have to drink to have fun. You know, you don't. And and a lot of people growing up now, the younger people, they're more health conscious, fitness, what they eat, what they put inside their bodies. So there are a whole new generation of people coming through, which I think is fantastic. But I think it's people my age that have been doing it. I mean, I was drinking for 40 years uh, and you get stuck in that groove of either well, I've been doing it too long now to change or I won't be able to stop and that. And this is what I do with my job is try to encourage people. It doesn't matter how old you are, you can change your life. And more and more people are now. You know, there, there's so many people deciding to to stop drinking in their 50s and 60s as well. Yeah, and that, that's uh, one of the things we're noticing with um, with our, um, our Sentia, our alcohol alternative, is it? Actually, we thought it would be young people that would turn to it, but in fact, we're, there's a lot, a lot of older people who are saying, at last, I've got something that I actually like the taste of. It gives me a little bit of relaxation and it isn't alcohol. And of course, you see in America, there, there's a big swing of the, uh, the, the retired people to cannabis because before they couldn't use it because they could test, be tested at work. And now they're thinking, great. Now I can, you know, have half a split at night instead of uh, half a bottle of wine. That's, That'll happen, I think, in, in most countries where cannabis becomes legal. Hopefully well, talking about Sentia, like that works on the GABA, right? That's right. Sentia is designed to mimic the effect of low a low dose of alcohol. The first amount, uh, the half, the first, the effect of the first uh, uh, half glass of wine, half a half pint of beer, to turn on the GABA system, to just to chill you out, relax you, make you more socially engaged, etc. So for me. It's. I, I think I heard the high without the hangover, and I'm probably talking. And I want you to put it right here. Probably talking for thousands of people. Or, you know that that sounds scary to me, right? Yeah, we don't mean that. That's actually, I think, the misrepresentation. It's not alcohol. If you want to get drunk, there's no point in buying Sentia because you don't get drunk. What's what Sentia is is a is a it's a, it, we call it the first GABA spirit. It's a it's a drink which is designed just to tickle up the GABA system enough so that you can just take away that anxious edge that you have when you start it. go to a party, you're meeting a stranger, you're going into a situation like a party. It's, it, it, when you're talking to someone you know that you don't really know, it's about bringing in the relaxation that you want from alcohol particularly in social situations. And we think it actually it probably works better in social situations. If you want to get sit in front of the TV and drink Sentia, well, you know, you like the taste, but you probably won't get as big an effect as you do if you're doing it socially. But if you're seeking all the other effects of alcohol, you're not going to get it because it doesn't release dopamine, doesn't release endorphins. It doesn't, it's not going to get you into that out of control, intoxicated kind of hedonistic mode isn't that's not what it's designed for no i i get that but i think it's good to clarify that there's no kind of psychological risk there that if you have a, a sentia that you can think oh my god um i want a real drink now it's just basically working on your gaba to relax you basically yeah we deliberately t- try to avoid t- turning on the dopamine system because as you've said already in the, 
in this podcast, the dopamine system is the one that starts to get you out of control. Yeah. But, um, I wanted, but there's a very important point I must make here. We haven't formally tested it in people who were alcoholics who stopped drinking because that would be a very difficult thing to do and probably be unethical. However, quite a few people have said to us, you didn't know this, but I was an alcoholic. I've been dry for some time. I tried it. I enjoyed it. But it, and it did not really crave alcohol. So, so that reassures me. I can't say categorically it's safe, but I can just say that you know, at least we've got some, some people have said that they've managed to do to, to use it without having a craving. The disclaimer I always say to people who they ask me what they think of alcohol free drinks is that if on any level they trigger you in any way, stay away. But if they don't, they can actually help you. So it sounds like it's pretty similar because I know people that will have one, um, I won't name the brand, but a a 0% beer, and that can stop the cravings for the the evening. It's very interesting, isn't it? And that's because there's there's more to drinking than alcohol. Yeah. There's this flavor, this taste. You know, there's the experience, the, the environment, environment, the, the condensation on the, on the side of the, of yeah. the uh, glass, yeah. etc. So there are many factors which um, come together to make the impact of drinking. And uh, you don't have to have the alcohol to get some of the pleasures. No, that's true. So before we go, David, what is next for you? You've done so much. It's like, what is next on the list for you? Well, I'm keen to progress Sentia beyond so Sentia is a botanical drink, a mixture of herbs that mimic this, uh, the effect of small amounts of alcohol. But I think we can do better. What, what we're working on is a small molecule that we could make as an ingredient that we could license to all the drinks companies in the world. Any drinks company could license this molecule and they could put that into their drinks instead of having alcohol in the drinks. And so we'd have a parallel market for a, a, a much, much less harmful brand of drinks. And I would hope then that young people, the next generation, the generation after that, who are who are looking for healthier options, will move to that. And if we could reduce the consumption of alcohol by even ten percent globally with this, the health benefits. Well, you know, it's over three and a half million people a year die from alcohol-related harm. If we could reduce that by ten percent, that's you know, that's nearly half a million lives saved, isn't it? Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? It's a huge, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the health risks of drinking in it, and most people don't know half of them, do they? You know, like cancer is is a huge. Can I just tell you this statistic, which I only learned just a few years ago, was one of the things that was impetus behind writing the drink book. If alcohol was invented today, and I said I have a wonderful new ingredient to make a special kind of trifle. And they'd say, yes, you can sell it, but you've got to put it through food safety testing. If alcohol went through food safety testing today, well, it's been through food safety testing, we know that the maximal recommended annual yearly allowance is a glass of wine. And that's because of the cancer risk. So you know, we actively choose to ignore the harms of alcohol because of the benefits. And so yeah, okay, I say two things about that. As long as people know, that's good. People should know the truth. But it wouldn't be great if we could give them the benefits without the harms. And that's what I'm trying to do. Oh, that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. You know, with, with the labels on bottles as well, that that's a big thing for me. It's like you, you've got um, drink responsibly, as you said earlier, 
But is there any movement there, do you think, with how they're going to change? Because I think in Ireland they've changed the labelling now. You know, on t- yeah, they're trying to change. I mean, there's uh, again, there's pressure in the EU, Ireland's in the EU, there's pressure in the EU not to, for this not to happen because alcohol is a big industry in the EU. But let me be clear, one of the interesting things is that France changed. 15 years ago, France changed their attitude to alcohol in, in three fundamental ways. They stopped all advertising. They reduced the drink living, driving limit from 80 to 50. And they tried to phase out cheap wine. They succeeded in all those things. They reduced the harms of alcohol, reduced fetal alcohol syndrome. They improved the, the, the profitability of the French wine industry because more expensive wines, everyone's making expensive wines, is more profit. And they still managed to win the World Cup at football and get a really good rugby team without any alcohol advertising. So come on, guys, you know, you don't need to have yeah. alcohol thrown at your face all the time in order to, to actually be a successful country. Yeah, absolutely. Well, David, I'm so grateful you've joined me today. It's been a fascinating interview. Uh, and people can buy your book, Drink and psychedelics i got mine off amazon ordered it um two days ago and arrived yesterday and i was already stuck into it on the train yesterday so and it's a brilliant brilliant book so thank you so much for joining me uh have a brilliant day mate thank you so much it's really been great talking to you keep up the good work thank you i really hope you enjoyed the show today don't forget to subscribe and leave a review For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening, and have a great week.